Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom. This is Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. A few months ago, I had the honor of recording a podcast series for the National Union for Reform Judaism called Spiritual Accounting, Insight from Jewish Business Leaders. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation from that series with Temple Israel member Billy Orgel. Shalom, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Spiritual Accounting, Insight from Jewish Business Leaders. I am Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus dialing in live from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. As a former investment banker and um, entrepreneurship professional, startup professional, it is my honor and privilege to be able to speak with business leaders from all over the country and tonight from my great city of Memphis, Tennessee and this special congregation, Temple Israel. Um, Tonight, we are thrilled to have on the show, Billy Orgel. Um, Billy is the principal president and CEO of Tower Ventures. After Billy's college graduation, he moved back to Memphis to work at the family business, Majestic Communications, which he helped build into the area's largest retailer of Motorola two-way radios. When the radio business was sold in 1995, Billy began to build on his existing portfolio of radio communications towers by building cell phone towers for the rapidly expanding wireless industry. Uh, quite Quite the prescient move on their part because of course, in uh, the mid-90s, um, who except for Billy Orgel would have known uh, what cell phone towers would, would turn into um, 25 years later. Beyond his business interests, he's been heavily involved in the community through board work. Um, he is actually on the Shelby County School School Board, and he has invested in a number of um really quite transformative real estate development projects and historic building preservation projects um, all throughout downtown Memphis. And uh, my personal favorite is a part owner of the Memphis Grizzlies, our NBA team. Uh, Billy, we are so uh, glad and honored to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Rabbi, thanks for welcoming me. And it's I love to say Rabbi to you because I've known you in a, uh, uh, a former life and a different profession. And uh, and I've actually known you since you were a small child, child, and I grew up with your mom. And uh, you come from a great family, and I can't tell you, just like Rabbi Adam, how pleased we were that he was in Memphis and served our congregation. But how excited we are to see a child of our congregation, someone as bright, energetic, outgoing, uh, and a true leader to be uh, to be at Temple Israel in Memphis. And I know your mom, who you work alongside, could not be happier. And uh, and also, you were growing up a nice young man, and you're always nice to my kids. And uh, you and your brother Jeremy are great people. And so we're uh, we're so happy you're in Memphis and honored to do this. And I can tell you, uh, I wouldn't be doing it if you hadn't asked me. So thank you very much, uh, and appreciate all that you're doing. And thanks for the kind introduction. Thank you, thank you for all of that, and. Um, it is really special to be back in a place where, um, I, you know, I've known you and and so many like you, but your your special family, uh, my whole life. So really fun to be able to do this work alongside you. I, I want to begin by asking you how you got here. We heard a little bit about what you're up to now, but can you talk a little bit about your family life growing up, what your your Jewish life was like, and how that led you to where you are today? The um, so like you, but probably 20, 30 years plus, 27 years plus, I grew up at Temple Israel and uh, 
I think my children are probably fifth generation Temple Israel members in Memphis. And I, I go back to the old temple in Poplar Montgomery. And uh, so our, our life, uh, believe it or not, in a, a city the size of Memphis, and you may have had similar upbringing. I think Adam was from Columbus, but uh, Ohio, but we uh, it did revolve around Jewish things. And it revolved around our life at Temple Israel, our life at the Jewish Community Center. Um, um, I even joke, we, I went to MUS, uh, which is a local high school, and, and a lot of the Jewish kids, um, not because we had to, but because we grew up together. Our parents were friends. We were friends. We were in high school fraternity together. We kind of even sat together at school. And uh, a lot of us played together after school. We weren't excluded, but uh, we had a very tight-knit Jewish community in, in those days. And maybe because at some institutions, at some levels, Jews were excluded, but um, and, and maybe socially. But so my life revolved around Temple and uh, family. And I spent many Friday nights. My parents were well involved. My dad was former Brotherhood president, and I was fortunate to serve the Brotherhood as well some 30 years later. So we he took it as a responsibility to cook and do things at Temple for the Brotherhood, and I was at Temple on Friday nights with my sister Deborah and um, the other families that would go every Friday night. And uh, so I, I think Temple has given me a strong foundation uh, uh, morally, uh, Jewishly, and uh, I think it's given me a strong sense of community being um, a part of Temple and continuing to be a part of Temple. Very nice. I'm curious about what you said about the fact that growing up, you had such a tightly knit group of Jewish friends. Now, I certainly had that experience, too. By the time I was coming up, uh, 20 years after you were, I didn't notice so much of the exclusionary nature that I kind of took it for granted that we in the Memphis Jewish community hang, hung out with other Jewish people. I, I certainly had friends outside of the Jewish community um, from soccer or school or, or whatnot. Um, but I took it for granted that basically we, if we, I wanted to be a part of a club or um, play golf somewhere, not that I'm a, my, my brother is the golfer, not me. Um, but I never had that experience. Um, did you feel growing up any exclusion because of your Jewishness? And I felt different because of it. I, I would say it's funny is, is and we, we, we probably don't say it as much as we did, but we would be in such a small part of the population, 10,000 Jews when I was growing up in Memphis out of, we'll call it a million people. So that's, if you, you're good, uh, you're an entrepreneur and a good student, Wash U grad. Um, that would mean so one percent. So and I, it's it's funny. And I'll, I'll I'll tell you this anecdotally. Like my my guy that used to do a lot of my dirt work on uh, towers, uh, he did a lot of work for a lot of Jewish contractors and other people. He knew a lot of Jewish people, or what he thought was a lot. But he was from Mississippi, and and we went to lunch one day, and I said uh, he's saying something about this person, that person. He said, how many Jewish people do you think live in Memphis? Jamie is his name. He said, I don't know, uh, 150,000. And I'm like, no. I said, 10,000. He said, you got to be kidding. I said, no, that's it. But just because that was his reference, those are the people he did business with, so he knew it. So what's funny is I don't do it as much anymore, but we would refer to people as non-Jews. And so really, I mean, 99% of the people aren't Jewish. But we would always say non-Jews, and uh, which is, uh, I guess maybe our parents said Gentiles, but we, we would say non-Jews growing up. And uh, But no, I didn't feel like it. I, I think that, yes, some of the social places, the country clubs, you, it, Jeff, you, you didn't remember it, but your mom does. And uh, your grandparents said, I mean, we had a Jewish country club, and that was pretty prevalent all over the South. And you get up to New York or somewhere, sure, there were Jewish country clubs. But they even subdivided even further. They had German Jewish country clubs and Eastern European uh, Jewish country clubs. So now everybody plays golf together. Everybody does things together. I think we're a much more assimilated society at a lot of levels. And But I never felt excluded. And I never felt that Memphis was too provincial and that I had to leave Memphis. I think there's always been a great respect for our uh, lay leadership and our um, rabbinic leadership in our community. And so I think 
we're in a deeply religious place with a lot of churches, but I think there's always been a, a deep respect for our Jewish communal leaders and uh, what they've brought to the community. Great philanthropists, great rabbis, um, even great political leaders. And that continues today. I knew I was different. I just didn't feel excluded. Yeah, I I resonate with that idea of being different but not excluded. And I actually think, and I've talked about this, I think with, with Rabbi Adam Grossman, who is spearheading this podcast from the URJ, uh, but I had the experience of being in the Bible Belt, Memphis, you know, right smack dab in the middle. You drive down the street, there's a church on every corner. And I actually think growing up in the Bible Belt, where religion is front and center in everybody's life. And everybody, or many of my friends growing up, would go to church on Sundays and, and on Wednesday nights. And because of that, it always actually seemed easy for them to accept the fact that I had Jewish friends and I went to temple and that Judaism was a big part of my life. And I feel like if I'd grown up in a place where maybe religion were less central, um, where religion were was not what everybody did, maybe I actually would have had a harder time getting my Jewishness accepted than I did here in the South. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. We probably didn't wear it on his sleeves as much as we do now. Um, but and and then being where we're from, you know, I'd say it was even more segregated racially than it was religiously. And um, and I think there was a we were concentrated, so there was a general acceptance. And um, there were some, because we were concentrated, because a lot of Jewish people lived in the same area, uh, you went to Lausanne, I went to MUS, and most of the other kids went to schools close by. It was really concentrated um, so much that I think that there was less of an issue that we, we kind of, um, safety in numbers, like we were living in Brooklyn or something, but we weren't, but we, we had some good safety in numbers and, uh, and, and, and I like that. So, and, uh, and I think successive generations, you're my children's age, uh, didn't have as much problem with it because it wasn't socially acceptable to be a racist or wasn't socially acceptable to be anti-Semitic or anti you know, just wasn't acceptable, anti-gay. It, does, it doesn't matter. Just, uh, the things that would come out of my friend's mouth would never come out of your mouth, uh, at least in public or to somebody else. So that's a start. Good start. So you you talked a second ago about how temple and Judaism was a place that really shaped your values. And I'm curious, growing up, you grew up, if I'm if I'm my math is right, right after the civil rights movement. You maybe were a little kid um, when Martin Luther King was shot here um, and all of everything that surrounded that. But this place, Temple Israel, and in large part, Reform Judaism around the country, although not everywhere, were big in promoting civil rights um, and dialogue and partnership uh, with the African-American community. So I'm curious, did were you exposed to that at all as a kid? And then all, if you were or weren't, like, how do you think that uh, growing up Jewish informed your perspective on gay, right, LGBTQ equality, black, white equality, racial equality, et cetera? So I'll take the first one. I think Temple has always had a mantra about social justice. That doesn't mean that everybody at Temple today or then agrees. And um, with uh, what is spoken from the congregation. So if you read our con uh, congregational history and we're 166 years old, I think. I think so, yeah. It's 165. So we've got a, so for the people listening, we've got a, a book that was written by one of our congregants, Judy Ringel, that that goes through our history. So there was a lot of dissension and there were people that left the congregation over the stance on civil rights. And um, I think you, you know well, and your um, mom was, if she, I swear, and this is just coming from memory, was she one of the first bot mitzvahs I believe temple. she was, yeah. Yeah, well, I think she you know was. What? I actually think she, I I, I should know this, uh, but I, I actually it. think that she did not have a bat mitzvah. I think she just missed that and then had one later in life. She did. Okay, so my, my sister was one of the first bat mitzvahs, and she was bat mitzvah by Rabbi Wax, who was 
a champion of civil rights. You know, the guy was from from Missouri, Herculaneum, Missouri or something. And he and the rabbi uh, Becker from Beth Shalom uh, were very active in the ministerial association, which was a lot of liberal Protestants and probably a lot of black ministers. And, and they Shalom, for, for those not from Memphis, is the one of the conservative synagogues here. Yeah, Beth Shalom's conservative. And so they they were champions of civil rights and, and preached from the pulpit. I was younger. I was five when Martin Luther King got shot, but I actually remembered because my parents had an auto parts store, my grandparents, in an area that was predominantly historic black neighborhood. And I remember the fear for my dad that, you know, they would lose, um, they would lose their business over what had happened. And, and because of the, 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 uh, I guess the reaction by the black community to what the horrible event that took place. But, um, but Rabbi Wax, um, and, and a little known, our mayor was Jewish, uh, during the civil rights movement. And I believe, um, his brother, he was not, but his brother was still a member of our congregation. And if you went and looked in the archives, when Rabbi Wax, uh, Martin Luther King got killed on April 4th, uh, 1968. And, uh, and Jeff, you can always know that, uh, YouTube song in the name of love, April 4th in the Memphis sky, um, in the name of love. So you can always remember the date. If you don't remember that and, uh, if you like YouTube and, uh, so, uh, he preached from the congregation that Friday. I don't know if it was the day of the day after. And there's a letter, my uh, Rabbi Greenstein can show it to you where his brother, Bill Loeb, I believe resigned from the congregation because the comments that, uh, Rabbi Wax made, there were shown in the New York times, I think the next day. And he talked about the laws of Tennessee and the city of Memphis that you can't follow those. You need to respect the laws of God. And mm -hmm. so I knew that. And I was five years old and that had been drilled into my head that, um, about being righteous, doing the right thing. And, uh, I can't tell you, I can tell you very few things that are said from the pulpit. And that's not because we've got two rabbis on the on the podcast and I have one that's a very dear friend, but there's not a lot of things. I remember Rabbi Danziger who followed Rabbi Wax talked about, uh, God's unfinished business. Uh, and so that's a mantra in our congregation going back 40 years that you take care. I mean, I guess you could relate it to the corners of the field, but you take care of those in the community who are forgotten. And, um, my wife and I and my family, we try to live that way. And, and, forget other people. And it could be small things that you do for other people, but it could also be supporting things in the community that help others other than ourselves, because uh, there are other people around us. Yeah, that's a really beautiful image. The idea that God created the world or created the universe. And yet there's still things that God needs us to be partners with God for. And, and many of those things, taking care of the poor, the needy, visiting the sick are things that I know Rabbi Danziger's, I think, was that a high holiday sermon? I think it was. And it stuck. I mean, yeah, it should stick. All It does stick and it did stick, but he institutionalized it where it's something that um, I, I think it's his greatest legacy besides his sweet wife and his three kids. His, and, uh, and one of the, whom his son, Michael's a rabbi, but uh, part of his legacy to me is, is that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's a really empowering teaching in Judaism that maybe God is powerful enough if we, whatever kind of God we believe in, the, the story we normally tell about God is God's powerful enough to create the world, powerful enough um, to, to all of the, the things we think about when we think about God, and yet God still needs our help, little lowly human beings to create the world, the kind of world that God wants and that we all want. And that's, I think, for our day when so many people are are um, inspired by the notion of tikkun olam, of repairing the world, it really um, is us being in partnership with God. When, when we do things to make this world a better place, That that is work that God needs us to do. So I want to ask you, Billy, um, before we get into talking about the business, is you you talked just in your introduction about 
your your sense of of commitment and dedication to um, not only to the broader city, which we'll talk about also, but to Temple, to this institution, and to supporting the Jewish community. And one thing that I, I as I got ordained six months ago, but I'm like you said, I'm a millennial. Um, I I don't know. I don't mean that with any disrespect. If I said that, I mean I there's no pejorative. No, not at all. No, no. But I I just say that to to mean that people. And you've been in the same job for six months. So that's very uncommon for a millennial. That's good. There you go. I I hope it sticks. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, I'm I'm quite long tenured for someone my age. Um, But I don't think that the level of commitment that you um, specifically, but also maybe it's indicative of your generation. But let's talk about you, um, that you felt like you needed to support um, an institution like a synagogue in the Jewish community. And I think many of us who grew up in a in an era when all people your generation older had that commitment and provided um, synagogues and federations and all of those things that we, that benefited us, and we kind of take it for granted, I think. And so can you, and it, it is potentially worrisome for the future of Jewish communal institutions. We in every generation, we always worry that Judaism isn't going to look exactly the same as what became before. And so I don't think, I think the jury's still out about what our generation does and how we affiliate and how we support synagogues, et cetera. But can you talk a little bit about, number one, why um, your commitment is so strong, why you did that from such a young age, and what you think about people my age, um, your son, Ben, your, your oldest son, um, is a couple of years younger than me. And like, what, what you think about people his age and your kid's age and their commitment to Jewish institutions? So I'm going to come back to the, that, but I'll take the, the reason I was committed to Temple was, you know, I was consecrated there, uh, bar mitzvah there, confirmed, graduated. I wasn't married there because my wife grew up in an Orthodox synagogue. And we got married there, but we were members of just Temple. And um, but it, it definitely my parents. Uh, the the fact they didn't drill it into us. They didn't they didn't say do this do that. We we never went to Israel. I went to Israel uh, when I was twenty seven. Um, I think my parents, my dead mom and dad, and then when my mom was died, my dad went with uh, my stepmom Terry. And uh, and maybe went a couple times. Um, and my sister, I don't think she went until later. So it wasn't the connection to Israel, but we did talk about Israel. But two two things. Um, the 1973, uh, there was a, a new camp that was three years old in Utica, Mississippi. And uh, I think in the 60s, we had a lot of great leaders at Temple, Julian Allenberg. Rudy Scheidt Sr., Scheidt Seminar, and both of blessed memory, that along with others from around the region, which would be West Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, decided we need a Jewish camp. And that was a 10-year odyssey that uh, culminated, I think, in the summer of 1970. So in February of 1973, uh, my parents, they had adult weekends. And I think your grandparents... Sumner and Phyllis used to come sometimes, I believe. But if I'm wrong, um, you have to ask your grandmother if I'm wrong. But uh, and our and our and my parents and your grandparents were friends, and um, the they took us down there for the weekend. My sister Deborah and I. I was ten; she was eleven. They signed us up for camp that summer, and that was uh, fifty-eight. Forty-eight years later, I'm not there all the time, but I've never stopped going. And um, so that gave me a strong Jewish identity. I've, I've still got friends. I told one of them happy birthday the other day from camp. Another one's in the lighting business. I just asked him to quote on something for me. Uh, from a store down in Alabama. Um, and I, I've been to, I've been in weddings, attended their parents' funerals. Uh, they, we just, this summer, went on a vacation with three of my camp friends and their wives and uh, on a golf trip. And you talk about relationships that were started and nurtured for the last, we'll call it 50 years, just because we're rounding up. 
So that was a big part of it. And, uh, and I, I know we, the camp celebrated its 50th anniversary uh, right before the pandemic in November of 2019. And I was, I was fortunate to be involved in that effort down in New Orleans. And uh, so I, I think that really had a lot to do with it. I mean, I would come home from camp and I'd count down the next 11 months till I was going back. And that was a big part of my life and my sister's life. And that was a big part of our social life. And I was president of the regional youth group. And I just thought that was what I wanted to do. I decided when I was in seventh grade that <clears throat> that's what I wanted to do. And uh, as I continued on to college, as we all know from college, I went to University of Texas. I didn't do a whole lot of things Jewish other than being a Jewish attorney. But Temple had a perpetual endowment campaign, which is the money that's used to preserve our beautiful 30-acre campus and our our um, a beautiful building that uh, takes a lot of upkeep. And so the the founding father of what I would call the modern congregation, when we moved to our new location in 1976, was A. Plow, the Plow Drug Company. And he paid for about half of the new building. Others chipped in, but he he was the driving force behind it. And they wanted a endowment to take care of the building. And my mom says, you and your sister are going to donate your money to that. And I always remember that. And I told my kids the same thing 30 years later when we had an endowment campaign. And I, my two oldest children uh, donated money to the campaign. And uh, it's called something different. But uh, I thought that was so important. To, and, and we're pretty egalitarian at Temple Israel. Until last 15, 20 years, we haven't really named a lot of things at Temple. And uh, which was fine with me. And but we raised twenty eight million dollars on a twenty five million dollar campaign that I was fortunate to be involved in. Um, and I remember one of our congregants who I grew up with, who's still friends with me and who grew up uh, in a pretty well off family. Um, he argued vociferously in our meetings that somebody's going to give a million and somebody's going to give a hundred to this. $25 million campaign where we raised 28. He said, but when we list them all, they need to be listed alphabetically. Nobody needs to know out of the thousand, out of the, then the 1800 members who gave they, they, we know who gave, but we don't need to know how much they gave. Now there was another wall that listed the naming opportunities, but the main one, when you walk in the entrance near your office, Jeff is a list of names, a sea of names. And I think it's there. I can't remember if it's a mobile. It may be a mobile. So I'm trying to remember what it was. But uh, I thought that spoke volumes about our congregation and how you treat people, that everyone's the same. Uh, one God, everybody's the same. Everybody created by God. And that nobody gets better seats at high holidays. Nobody gets preferential treatments. Doesn't matter if you're the largest donor. You don't get a bar mitzvah date. You pick it out of a hat like everybody else. When we used to have that problem, we did used to have that problem. And it was a big it was like the NBA draft. You came in there to draft your bar mitzvah date. And that was a great problem to have. I wish we had that problem again. But you and your wife need to start having children to do that. But anyway, that's another story. So um, Adam did his part. Adam Grossman did his part with four children. But um, so anyway, that those were the events that that really, I guess, established the roots of, of my Judaism. Not so much attending Torah study, other things like that, but just the way we treat other people at Temple. Wow, I'm really struck by the example, by a lot of what you said. Um, the camp, well, I, I know we'll get back to camp because that's such an important part of, of your life and, and also mine as well. I met my wife. Um, she she helped run all the URJ camps. I did not know that. I did yeah, not know that's actually how we met. So uh, my year in Israel, the first, for those of you watching who don't know the path of rabbinical school, um, the first year of rabbinical school through the reform movement is in Jerusalem. So I was living in Israel and I was coming back that summer to work at Jacob's camp, um, the camp you were talking about in Mississippi as the as the Jewish educator. And I was going to this seminar, a training seminar at a kibbutz in Israel. And um, my wife, my now wife, who at that point was a stranger, um, was the associate director of camping for the URJ the Union for Reform Judaism. And so she was there training on the Israeli shlichim. And we hope that she doesn't mind that I'm telling the story uh, in, you know, on a podcast. 
but uh, we met and hit it off. And um, I, she was living in New York and I was still in Israel, but um, we, we met because of camp and we hit it off and dated long distance for a while. And now uh, she, she's my wife. So uh, camp, camp also brought us together, which is very, very special. But I, I'm actually really inspired by this story about your parents and your mom saying, we're donating this campaign and I want you to as well. I think I'm just so struck by that, you know, no matter what you gave, you, you, you crack open your piggy bank or your some kind of kosher piggy bank. And uh, you, no matter how much you have, learning as a kid that you, that you're giving um, not only can make an impact, but is, is necessary and is needed to keep our community going. That's a really, really powerful and important message to teach your kids. Well, you can't, uh, you, you can't, um, you, you hope you impart that knowledge upon them. I mean, you can't make somebody do it. And I didn't argue. I mean, I did, I just said, uh, I understood it, but she knew the importance. Um, and, and by the way, my mother grew up in small town, Morristown, Tennessee, with immigrant parents that um, came from Poland, but at a, at a, you know, in their, in their teens or their 20s. And uh, and moved to a textile town in East Tennessee, and there were probably ten Jewish families, and uh, so they were they were tight knit. So she knew the importance of the Jewish community, and they were different there, and they were probably treated more like an oddity um, in Morristown, but uh, they were an important part of the the fabric there. And actually, there's a book written about it that right. one of the grandsons wrote about. Uh, the families and my grandfather was in a chapter and he was just a, he was, he, he just was a working guy. And uh, what's, that, what's the book called? Or uh, it, it probably wasn't, didn't make it on Amazon, but I think okay. it was called the, the Jews of Hamlin County. But, there you uh, go. It, but I, I read the chapter. I can't profess that I read the whole thing, but I read it about uh, my grandfather, Herman Lasnik. Hmm. Um, it was a good, simple man. And, uh, and uh, taught me, uh, you know, just taught me about treating people right. And he, he worked for my dad and uh, later in life and uh, was a good person. I think that speaks to what's special about Jewish camping, um, especially in the South, is that for, for many people like us who grew up in Memphis, which believe it or not to our listeners uh, and viewers around the country, in this region, Memphis is looked at as, as the, the pillar, the, the giant Jewish community. But many people who grew up in Hamlin County or in, in the Mississippi Delta or in the small towns of Arkansas and Louisiana, it's Jewish camp is the one place they actually get to feel like a Jew. And they get to meet, they, they might be the not only the only Jewish person in their grade, but in their school, or maybe in some cases, some of my friends, the only Jewish family in their town. And um Jewish identity, uh, we know from the Pew study and all types of sociological studies, the importance of um, Jewish camp shaping Jewish identity. But I think in the South, and, and probably true for many communities that, that URJ serves, um, outside of, of the Northeast and California, like many of our people probably come from smaller, smaller places for, for whom camp is the one place where they get to really explore and embrace their Judaism. No, I, 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 uh, and I certainly felt that way. And I, I didn't, I didn't have the experience of somebody from a small town in Mississippi or Louisiana, but I did feel comfortable there. And I think it gave me a very strong foundation. And I think it's important for our children, uh, to be there. And, and I remain a huge supporter of the camp and, uh, and the whole, the whole movement. And, um, I think the URJ is doing a wonderful job. That wasn't an advertisement, but, um, and we've got great, extraordinary leadership at Jacobs Camp right now. And uh, I think that's important. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, we do. We're lucky. We're, we're very lucky. Um, I want to switch gears though, um, being mindful of, of your time. Can we, can you talk a little bit about your business um, life today? You're very, I know you're involved in a lot of different projects, not just, Tower Ventures anymore, but also now real estate, um, all kind of things. So 
Could you just give our listeners a little bit of background on what you do and then, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So um, currently, and I'm, I'm fortunate, actually at, at one point, um, um, actually was invited to go speak about multi-generational businesses. So we're what I call an evolutionary multi-generational business. It, uh, it's not the same thing that my grandfather did. It's not the same thing as my dad did. It's not the same for my son as it was for me, but we've all evolved out of the same business. And um, uh, it's, it's kind of fun to uh, have done that and to have my son working alongside me for the last seven years. And um, and Benjamin's a workhorse and has done a great job, and I'm very proud of the work he's done. And um, it's great to see him at work every day. And, and actually, I regret that I had my head down so much. I always joke that I, I I wish I didn't have any seats in my office so nobody would come sit and talk to me when I'm trying to work. And uh, and so I, I worked alongside my dad for a long time. And and a big regret that I didn't you know spend more time just sitting there talking to him and let him impart wisdom upon me, which he had plenty of wisdom, which we could, that could be another podcast. But the, um, so I, I'm in, we started the two-way radio business and that's like Motorola radios. And we had licenses, much like a cellular license. And we had dispatch service and we sold it. We had a paging company. We sold the service to plumbers, contractors, paving companies. And um, in the mid nineties uh, made the decision we grew the business uh, pretty rapidly, made the decision that uh, we would sell our licenses, which were really the valuable part of it, and the customers. And uh, that business evolved into another sailor license. Um, uh, Nextel, which was around back then, later bought by Sprint, and now Sprint's owned by T-Mobile, um, ended up developing um, a third at that time sailor network. Well, um, since we had sold to a, a Next tell ended up being the uh, successor company to who we sold to, but we started, they were capital constrained and they needed towers. They had to build a network to match and I'll make it simple, AT&T and Verizon, because that's who the original guys basically were. That's not exactly the way it was, but they needed to match, and build out a network. You, you, you wouldn't have a cell phone, Jeff, if I told you it would just work in your neighborhood. And then maybe when you got to Atlanta, it would work. You had to have it work nationwide. So um, the big guys didn't want to let anybody else on their cell towers. And we owned some towers from our former business that we kept that the people that bought us didn't want. And we didn't know what to do with them, but I had nothing to do. I sold, I moved my office over to my, I actually worked for the people for about, I had a two-year contract. I was getting paid whether I worked or not. And after about six months of someone asking me questions and asking me to do things, I said, you know what? I'll advise you, but I'm not going to run it like I did before. I moved over to my dad's warehouse and manufacturing facility, cleaned out an office that had magazines from the 60s and 70s, and uh, started leasing my, my towers and started building more for Nextel. Um, that evolved. You know, we built three or four, built 11, built 20, built 100, and uh, took on some great partners. Uh, and um, so we We've um, we switched gears a little bit. We built three or four hundred of them, sold them. We switched gears a little bit in 2007, and mergers started happening in our industry. And when that happened, um, AT and T bought, merged, and bought companies, and they were their competitors. So they had towers near each other. So they sold packages of their towers that were duplicative that um, they had decommissioned their equipment and they went to the one next door and we bought them and that really grew our company. I mean, we were the most we had was hundred tower, 150 towers. All of a sudden we had 500 towers and then we bought a second set. We had 900 towers at one time and we kept building, we kept buying and, um, and then we would lease them. And it was an explosive time, probably um, 20, 2007 to, to, 12. I mean, it was just explosive in our business, even though you had a um, um, great recession in the middle of all that, it was still an explosive time. Values weren't as great, but people started relying more on their cell phone. They cut the cord, got rid of their home phone and cell towers became even more ubiquitous. 
And, and LTE, uh, I mean, that was right around the time of LTE, which uh, I can imagine just placed a tremendous amount of strain on the networks and they needed more, more towers. Needed, and then, and then these devices like you and I are talking on, I'm on an iPad and, and, you know, I just assume use my phone to look at my emails or use my iPad and, and go on Wi-Fi. Then I would go to my home computer, which is hardwired and my office computer. I sit at my desk all the time. I don't use my office phone and I don't use my computer. I'm on my phone and I'm tapping away. Um, and I can go to my computer and tap away, but I don't. So we became dependent on them. Uh, the Great Recession made us more dependent on them. Pandemic, more dependent on them. So we, we've we just um, had steady growth. It's not a high growth business like it was at one point, but um, it's part of our network, our infrastructure in this country. It's no different than having plumbing or, um, or water running to your house, sewer. Um, you want a, a, a digital pipeline to your house and your office, and uh, you're not going to work there or live there if you don't have that opportunity uh, to do it. So I, I think we picked a very good business. Maybe it was by mistake uh, or not, but we, we stuck with something and have been doing it. I built my first tower in 1987, and that was 34 years ago. And we're still doing it. and We're adapting and changing like you have to do in life. Uh, to meet the needs of our customers. And um, and we're active in buying and selling towers. Uh, in the, uh, I got married 31 years ago to my wife, Robin, and her dad um, named Sammy Salky owned a men's clothing store that catered to urban uh, men in downtown Memphis on our main street, our mall. And, uh, I would go see him. He wasn't very talkative. He, he's more talkative now, but he's a great guy. And I would, he had his building. It was he had his business, Sammy's in the basement. And I mean, he's had uh, Mick Jagger in there before, Michael Jordan, um, a lot of NBA players, NFL players. And uh, he had a great reputation and great shoes, great fashion. Um, one of the first people to sell Nike uh, back when that became popular. And um, has a great pair of Air Jordans, by the way. Need, needs to put them in safe. But um, some original Air Jordans. And um, he, um, I used to ask him about his buildings. And uh, when I was when I was in my teens, I'd come downtown in Memphis, and it was pretty much abandoned. We, you touched on it, Jeff, about um, Martin Luther King. Well, Martin Luther King was killed at the Lorraine Motel in downtown Memphis. So downtown Memphis emptied out. Uh, after 1968 and has seen a rebirth the last 20 years, but I mean, it was a tough road and we've, we've been involved in it and others paved the road for us to be involved. But I, I ended up asking him about his buildings, some guys that I'm friends with um, now, not then went to my father-in-law said, Hey, we want to buy your building. He said, he really want to talk to me. He said, talk to Billy. And, uh, and so a friendship was struck up. And one of them was a real estate um, agent, a broker. The other was a lawyer. And um, we are still partners 16, 17 years later. And we bought his buildings. We bought some more buildings and started doing historic projects on downtown Memphis, in downtown Memphis on the mall. And uh, we've built, uh, I don't know, a thousand units, seven or eight different projects, partnered with other people. But we've developed a little niche in doing historic buildings. And I would say it culminated with us um, doing the Tennessee brewery where my office is located, which was a 1890s brewery that was defunct in 1954 and uh, became a scrapyard, became abandoned, became a place where people, Jeff's age and older and younger went in there and sprayed graffiti and had parties snuck in uh, took pictures, uh, did whatever. It was just kind of a urban playground abandoned and they were going to tear it down and I got interested in it. And now it's uh, the home of Tower Ventures and uh, about 350 other people and a couple of restaurants and a big parking garage and uh, something I'm very proud of that uh, we work very hard on a partnership with a lot of people to get done. And, it, and it's led to some other very large 
um, historic projects that we're working on. So I want to ask you, um, in addition to the tax credits that you get for historic preservation, I'm certainly not an expert in this in this area. Um, what what drives you to do historic preservation as opposed to just tearing stuff down? And I'm sure it'd be easier from an engineering perspective, um, and and you don't have to build apartments in downtown Memphis in the heart of a, of a city, um, you could build anywhere. So what drives you to want to preserve these buildings and to, to help rebuild this part of town that see for, for decades was, um, unfortunately derelict. And actually we're in the shadow. Almost everybody's yard is the shadow of the Lorraine motel, the site of, uh, assassination of Martin Luther King and the civil rights, national civil rights museum, which I'm, I'm honored to be on their board, along with Rabbi Greenstein, who's been a longtime board member. The um, well, I, so I do build some urban projects, uh, excuse me, some suburban projects. And we do it in Texas. We've done some in Memphis, and I'm proud of them. And I'm proud that we're giving great living space to people. But uh, much like Temple and the the history of Temple um, and preserving our heritage, uh, I, I think that's important. I think we have to know where we came from and uh and to to get um to get to the future and to learn how to do the right things and i think that uh you got to respect uh the hard work and the drive and the the intuition and um the ingenuity of all the people that came before us and so i respect history i've always been a student of history um and, and I, I, I tell you a lot about history of Temple, as, as we alluded to in this. And um, these don't really have a lot of connection to Temple. And to I wish I could find one and tie that together. But they do have a, a lot of, to do with the history of our city. And uh, and people I know, and families I know. And, and the brewery, I, I dine at one of the restaurants uh, that the, the founder's grandson uh, runs. And uh, and have had him over and, and uh, showed him around, showed him what we did. And I still eat at his restaurant, Westies, by the way. Oh wow, um, the the good brownie pie with the ice cream and the whipped cream on top. But uh, so I just appreciate the history and and, um, and the history of our city, and um, I, I think it's made it important to do that. And 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 I can tell you, I, we're we've got some projects in Austin, and and they're great. But 20 years from now, I'm not going to drive by or go around the corner and drive five miles out of the way to show my grandkids, hopefully, that I said, hey, we built that. We built I, you know, it's just it's just business. This is more than business uh, to preserve something. That that strikes me as a very Jewish thing. You said you said it doesn't have a connection to Temple. It has a connection to Memphis. But. It's a very Jewish idea to want to carry on the legacy of the people who came before and to pay homage and honor to the hard work and the innovation and um, the commitment that the people who came before made, whether it was to creating a building or creating a community in, in a part of, of the city. Um, that Every time we read um, rabbinic text, when we read the Mishnah, when we read the Talmud, they're always quoting and paying on homage and honor to the people who taught them and who who carried on our tradition to the generation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, no, so I mean, I, I think you got to respect your, um, I, I wouldn't be politically correct, forefathers, just because we, I think a lot of text says that, but I think you have to respect that. And uh, I can't tell you, uh, and, and we, we alluded to Rabbi Wax, but the, the spirit of giving with, uh, and, and the viewers should know this because we're in a, a, a special place. Um, you walk in, and and I don't even know, if Rabbi, you know this, or uh, Rabbi Grossman knows this. You walk into our synagogue, and you come in the, the main entrance. You turn to the left, and uh, there's a portrait before you get to the Danziger Chapel. And do, do you know about that portrait? Of the plows? Yeah, so the, the main benefactor, of our congregation, and it—I uh, um, um, mean, uh, 
if it was football, he'd be Tom Brady because he's won more Super Bowls than anybody else. But I'm a Cowboys fan, and uh, but I respect what Tom Brady has done more, did more for our congregation, and we still talk about him. He's probably been deceased 35 years, but his wonderful family is still so generous to Temple. All he asked, he didn't want to be called the Plow Temple. It could have been. They want to be called the Plow Auditorium, the Plow Foyer. All he said was, "I want a, uh, a small picture of my parents um, placed there with a very small tag, and most people would never know who it was. Um, I mean, it could be a Norman Rockwell painting, and no one would know. But to to have that kind of spirit, and I will tell you, one of the great projects I did as this does tie Temple in was." Uh, his uh, broadcast company, A Plows, is down at 66 uh, Union Avenue and Main Street. And uh, there was a Walgreens there, but it was Plow Broadcasting, w, uh, WMPS, I think. I can't remember what it was. but uh, And we call it um, uh, Radio Center Flats. And we were going to partner with his family. And we ended up, the, the, the three sisters, his granddaughters, said, uh, it's too much trouble just buy it from us so uh but i always took great delight in that um that we we uh took that building something that he had built that was part of his legacy and that we redid and, and uh renewed it again um and working with his wonderful family so i can't tie that my real estate into it i didn't think there you go that. there you go I, I, thanks I, for I telling talk. me about that i didn't realize um that that was actually a way not of him taking credit, but as a way uh, or, or seeking recognition for himself, but as a way of paying honor to his parents. That's, I think that's number five, isn't it? Honor thy mother and father. There you I, go. I, I, I remember I reminded my daughter of that at her bat mitzvah. I said, uh, you, you, you follow, you'll, you'll probably come clean on most of the commandments, but you need to pay particular attention to number five. There you go. There you go. I want to ask you in the, in the little time that we have left, um, we've talked a lot about what you're doing in business, but can you talk a little bit about the values that guide what, um, how you do what you do? How, how do you try to live your life as a business person? Well, I, I, one, and you get older, so maturity helps. Uh, I, I really, even with my kids, especially my wife, Try not, I try to be understanding and I get angry. And so I, I think you remember somebody who probably was unkind to you when you were 15 or 16 years old or a teacher that called you something or said you're stupid or did, you know, you know, you're not, but, you know, just said something unkind to you and you, it sticks with you. And so through my business career, and I really pay close attention to it about what I say. And, um, and, and, it, and it really relates to my employees. So we talked about a multi-generational business. There are people uh, that worked for my grandfather and my dad that now work with me. And I've got two of them, just there were three employees. When my dad shut his business, I said, why don't I hire these three people? We'll retrain them. We'll, we'll find a job for them. So all three of them have never had another job. In fact, two of them retired after 40 years working with my family, came to our family events. Funny story, one of them, one of them got, I know I'm going to digress, but I got to tell you this. My daughter, Megan, is 26. She got by Mitzvah 13 years ago. There's a, a gentleman in my office named Melvin Gage, and he worked with my both my grandfathers and my dad because my dad had, had his dad work for him, with him. And he hired my mother's dad too. And um, Melvin, we're at Temple and uh, he's at a bar mitzvah. And um, Melvin is an African-American. And I go, I'm at, we're at Jonah Lender's bar mitzvah. I walk up to him and his wife and I said, hey, how are y'all doing? I didn't know y'all knew the Lenders. And he says, we don't. And I said, but you're at the bar mitzvah. He says, we got the date wrong. They came to the wrong bar. <laughs> Megan's was the next week and uh, he stayed there, but there, but he, he retired right before the pandemic, but it, and I'll give him credit because they sat there with two and a half hour service. But, um, 
but people in my office are like family. And, uh, and we worked together a long time. It's because my dad, who was a character who was friends with your grandfather, Sumner, blessed memory, um, was rough, but he had a good heart. And if somebody needed something, uh, he would take care of them. And he might say things he didn't mean, but he took care of them. And I tried to refine that a little bit and, and watch what I say and take care of people. So I generally don't get mad. And I try to be understanding the people in my office. I can fume sometimes, but I try to be understanding. And and uh, that's why our employees stick with us a long time. And um, and very particular about who comes and works. I don't want to upset the apple cart, but I want good people and I want honest people. And I want people with integrity. And I want them to work hard too and want to make, want to make money for the company. And uh, we take good care of people. So um, I think we're a nice place to work in it, I think. I learned that from my dad and I and my mother because my mother, before she passed away, worked with my dad. But just how important it is to take care of people and and uh, treat them kindly and and that's a Jewish that's a Jewish value somewhere in there. Definitely, you you name so many Jewish values. Um, just reading Pirkei Avot, um, our our central ethical text, that so, so much of 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 morality is, um, can't think of, of which which mission of this comes from, but um, just to, to greet people with a pleasant countenance, to, to show people respect, to, to treat them kindly when you meet them. Um, and the the other Jewish piece that that brings up for me is there's a story in, in um, the Talmud about imagining, and I think we actually talked about this in an earlier podcast, but imagining when you die and you go to heaven um, or, or you're, you're standing at the gates wondering if the angels are going to let you in. And that what does the angel ask um, to determine whether or not you can enter? It's not, uh, did you come to services every Friday night? It's not, uh, did you, you know, how many ham and cheese sandwiches did you eat? Or in Memphis, maybe we should say, you know, how many racks of ribs um, did you eat growing up? Um, no, it's were you honest in your business dealings? And depending I, I, on that question. And yeah. I think that's uh, I, I think that's very important, and uh, and I try to teach that to the 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 people from us. I, I would tell you one thing that it, we talked early, early about anti-Semitism, and uh, and so I am particular. It doesn't mean I'm going to say something, but I'm I remember it. So we were up. My partner Craig Weiss and I were up doing a tower lease in. 100 miles outside of Memphis in some rural community. And um, we went to this guy's house. He, he, I remember he had one arm, but he came out with a gun in the other when we walked up to his house. And he, we, we were negotiating a tower lease with him. He was eating bacon. I remember it smelled good. And uh, I don't have a problem eating bacon. And, uh, but anyway, we got talking to him. And, um, I looked around. He was a big Civil War buff. Maybe was still reliving it. And uh, he's actually named after one of the generals, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I think, if I remember correctly. That was his middle name, Forrest. And, um, or Nathan, it was Nathan. And um, so his son lived up in Nashville, and uh, my partner and I had to negotiate the lease with him. So we made him an offer, and it's a fair offer. And I always tell my people that don't, don't go out and do something below market with people because they'll find out and uh, having a, a landlord in a tower is like being married. It lasts a long time. So, and there's always going to be give and take and there are always going to be things you need to do. So be careful what you do and how you write the lease. So be fair. And, uh, and, and I can tell you the lowest ground lease that I ever did, I believe was with him. And I made him an offer, which was fair but it was rural. I could have gone anywhere. And his son said, um, called me and said, look, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm not trying to do you down. And I just went hair on my back of my head. Maybe it's something they said out in the country. And I said, his name was Mike. I said, Mike, nothing I can do. That's the price. I said, and we can go somewhere else if you don't like it. And I would have paid him for it, but he made that comment. 
and uh, and I and and I, I've had that five or ten times, and I can remember most of them if I think about it when people have said stuff like that. And uh, sometimes I explain it to them that probably that's not appropriate, but um, to me it's like saying a racial slur, which I would not do, and uh, and I and I don't appreciate people doing it. So I'm cognizant of that. I just it made me think of that, but. Um, I was being fair. He made that comment. I would have been more fair. And I stopped him in his tracks because he said that it was probably 20 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, those moments stick with you and, you know, good for you for figuring out a way to respond um, respectfully in spite of what he said. Um, it's always hard to know, you know, do you try to educate? Do you just move on and say these people are not going to you know, there's no reasoning with them. Um, but but I think also, I mean, growing up in the South has shown me that there's a lot of people that are just ignorant and they may not. Know I think that. it was ignorance. I, I yeah. think it was ignorance. But I, I just it, it irritated me and it irritated my partner. And it happened recently, too. And I ended up doing business with people. I still do business with a guy as a contractor of mine, made a similar comment sitting in my um, conference room. And uh, and my several of my partners are Jewish and none of us appreciated it. And uh, we let it go. We just didn't do business. So. so, so I want instead of ending on a negative note, who wants to end on anti-Semitism? Um, I want. Yeah, to we don't talk about that. I, I was. I... No, I appreciate you bringing it up because it's a real, it's a real experience, um, but uh, that many people face. But I want to ask you to end with um, a question of meaning. That Judaism is one path of many that guides us on how to find meaning in life. Um, I want to ask you, and you, you do so many things, not only the business we talked about, um, you're, you're on the school board, um, here in Shelby County, you're, you've been so involved in so many different things. What helps you find meaning? What, what do you find meaning in, whether it's passing, uh, or working with, with your, your kid, um, in, in the business? Um, how do you think about finding meaning in your life? Well, I, I think, uh, by doing the right thing and finding activities, pursuits that that make a difference. And um, you mentioned the Grizzlies um, earlier on and the fact I could be involved in the ownership group. Um, it wasn't about what most undersized Jewish guys, why they want to own an NBA team or be part of something like that. And, and this was Jews people that aren't Jewish, people in the community, black, white. It had nothing to do with it. It had to do with our community and being a part of our community and making Memphis a better place and making sure the team was here because it's one of those things like our Memphis Tigers basketball and football that brings the community together. And it's part of our fabric. And um, so what motivated me to invest was not so as could, could, you know, have you say, hey, he's a part owner of the Grizzlies, whatever. Had nothing to do with that. It was because it made a difference for Memphis, and um, and in my philanthropy, if it can make a difference for Temple, uh, Robin and I are going to make a difference for Temple because we wanted to sustain beyond 167 years. And when I was president of the congregation, I can tell you what I live by was like, don't um, you're only here two years. The place has been here at that time 155 years. Don't do anything to screw it up. The, the people of the last 155 years didn't screw it up, so don't mess it up in your two years. And remember, you're just kind of a placeholder. Then you go back to being a regular congregant. And while you're doing it, don't make people mad because you're going to live with them for the next 40 years. And uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of think that. I think where I can, I can, in our, in my wife and I's philanthropy, um, what we're involved in, it's where we can make a difference. And school board was about that. I wish I made more of a difference on the school board, but it's tough. Another podcast that we'd have to add to that, along with the one about my dad. But uh, it, it's hard, but, I, but you know, it's incremental. And, uh, but I do feel like it can make a difference in Temple. And I do feel like I can um, help raise my family Jewishly to do the right thing and uh, to follow the commandments and, and try to be, uh, live a good Jewish life and, um, and also love our community like I do. Billy, thank you so much. For, for being with me tonight, for sharing your story with, with all of our listeners, um, but also just for uh, doing what you can 
day in, day out to make this world a better place. It's a very um, inspiring story. And I really appreciate all that you and, and Robin and your family do for, for Temple, for Memphis, and for this whole Jewish world and, and really the whole world. So thank you very much. No, well, hey, thank, thanks for having me. And um, I, I appreciate it. I hope you had a good holiday. And um, I know I will see you very soon. But Sounds great. It. I'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Spiritual Accounting. If you want to check out the entire series, head over to RJ, like Reform Judaism, rjonthego.org. For this entire series, as well as engaging and enriching Jewish content for Jews of all ages and all backgrounds. Take care.